Glory. We met in the 11th grade of high school after I had come back for more than half a year on the road. I was wild and I wasn't wanted at home or at school and I had surprised and disappointed people by coming home. Spending seven months hitchhiking alone, crisscrossing the continent eight times, had given me too much experience. Nothing as terrible as the tales of Vietnam which older friends had brought back a few years before, but my wanderings had left me emptier than anyone should be. The nights in the cities, never having money, sleeping under bridges, being searched again and again by police, being beaten up, working in fields, sleeping on beaches, watching thunderheads over the Canadian plains, the lightning in the distance, and then standing in the storms, standing in the deserts, spending a week in a drunk tank, and listening to the stories of freaks, drunks, the soldiers, the Christians, and all the strangers who gave me rides. I came home because I needed something gentle after all of that. Before running away, all my friends had been the rough ones in school. Dope-smoking football players and guys with slouched shoulders, afternoon jobs and their own cars. They bragged about fights and about screwing and they shared girls. In the cabin, it was a shack built of stolen plywood in the woods near the interstate. They met with a girl named Tara and they did this every few days. I was invited, but I never showed up. Even before leaving home, I was looking, really just hoping, for something much more. I came back in November. School had already started, and I was barely there. Every few days, I would hitchhike to the Blue Ridge Mountains and spend some nights in the woods. I would build fires and sit by them next to their warmth and their light. There was snow then in those hardwood forests, and when I would crawl into my sleeping bag, I dreamed of someday how I might not be alone. I dreamed that someday I might be able to share these snowy, beautiful forest places, these secret places of the Shenandoah and the Monongahela. My father had given up on me by then, and out of respect, I left him alone, too. The school, though, was still trying. But the classes were more boring, and the guidance counselors and the shrink, both of which I had to see to be able to attend any classes at all, just seemed idiotic to me. As a habitual turrent, they wanted to simply kick me out of school. Most problem kids fit their stereotypes either as being violent or completely withdrawn. But I was neither. There was one meeting, after I had been gone for five days, having left on a Friday and coming back on a Thursday, that mid-morning the guidance counselor simply exploded. You want us to believe that you just spent five nights camping out by yourself? She yelled. I nodded, yes. Were you taking drugs?
And the shrink asked. I shook my head, no. Why should we let you keep going to school? The counselor asked. And I just shrugged. What do you do by yourself? She asked. I answered then, quietly. I read and I, I think a bit. Then one of them began to yell again, saying that I could damn well read and think in school or be in a job, but not just hang out in the woods. But, and I have no idea why, they let me keep attending English and physics, the two classes that I would go to at all. I could have told them the truth, that I sat in those oak and hickory forests and thought about all the stories that I had listened to and about all the strange and frightening people I had met. And mostly, I sat there in the woods and I thought about what I would do next and where I would go. It was one of those winter fires that helped me find her. In Mr. Bundy's afternoon physics class, she came in and she sat next to me. I had always looked at her. I had always had her in my impossible dreams. She was frail, and I only understood her delicate look as beauty. I knew nothing about her, except that she seemed to belong to the group of people whom didn't cross into the sort of people I spent time with. As Mr. Bundy scrawled equations on the blackboard, she said, in a whisper, Hey, you smell like smoke. I looked at her, but she wasn't looking at me, so I didn't answer. Then she whispered, You smell good. This time when I looked at her, she glanced up at me and she smiled. I had a absolutely no idea what to say, but we kept looking at each other, and, and then I stammered, I, I, I spent last night outside and I, I built a fire. Where outside? she asked, still in a quiet whisper, and looking down again into her notebook. I glanced up at Mr. Bundy, who was still busy at his blackboard, and I said quietly, I hitchhike into Shenandoah Park, I said. They don't allow fires here, but I just go deep into the woods, away from the trails, and I hitchhike back here this morning. Then she asked, Who did you go with? By myself, I answered. That must be lonely, she said. I didn't answer her for a few minutes. We were both pretending to be paying close attention to Mr. Bundy. Eight months before, I would have answered her with some sort of shrug, some tough guy, nah, or not really. But somehow I knew I had been given a chance to tell the truth. I had been in jail because I wouldn't give a judge my real name or age. I had blistered my hands in fields while other migrant workers laughed at my not owning a pair of gloves. I had gone to sleep hungry and woken up hungry many, many times. So I told the truth. 
I said. It's lonelier here. She looked at me and said, this time loud enough so that I could hear the music in her voice. It is lonely here, isn't it? I didn't answer her. I didn't know what to say. The next day I'm in physics class and she is there and she sits next to me again and we don't say anything or even look at each other. Mr. Bunday starts lecturing, but I am listening to her sounds more closely. Her breathing, the sound of her pencil, the rustling of her notebook. I am feeling outcast and more so because I have just told this girl who I don't know that I slept outside by a fire and I'm thinking that she was teasing me about my smelling good. I'm thinking that she will have told her friends about how I am a freak. I am thinking that she will be like the counselors and the shrinks, them not understanding how I could choose to be alone. I am failing every class and will not even come close to graduating. And there is no reason to keep coming to school at all. But I try right then to pay attention to Mr. Bunday. He's explaining something like circular momentum. But I have missed so many classes that its explanations are losing me. And I give up then and there. And I am deciding that I will leave. I'm thinking I'll just stand up, walk out of the class, go and fill a pack, and this time not come back. I am six foot two and I weigh 170 pounds. I can run a mile in five minutes. I've already read more books than most college graduates ever will. I have long curling hair tied back with a bandana. I know about stars and rocks. By listening to people, I am able to recognize the good ones from the others. I can sleep well on hard ground. I've eaten grouse that I've killed with stones and I've feasted on brown trout caught by the banks of western rivers. But I do not recognize any of this. I don't recognize anything good in myself. I think I'm a failure because I'm not a track athlete. I think I'm illiterate because I'm failing my classes and stutter. I think I'm ugly because I'm so tall and an outcast because I've been on the street and I feel that I am absolutely unlovable because I am only calm when I am alone. But somehow, I didn't stand up and leave. Somehow I made it through that class and then the bell is ringing and then she is standing up. And then she changes my life. She hands me a note. It's a sheet of notebook paper folded and then refolded into a two-inch square. She says quickly, I wrote to you, I wrote to you last night. And then she turns and walks fast into the crowd, which is pushing its way out of the room. I'm still sitting in the classroom, in Mr. Bundy's class. I've covered her note with my hand, and I'm excited, but I'm lost. Finally, I get up and go into the hallway and go outside. There are a few acres of trees still right next to the school, a place where kids go to smoke cigarettes or dope. And I go into these woods and I sit down there out of sight from anyone. And then I unfold the note and I read it. 
She says that she wants to know me. She says, everyone talks about me and wonders about me. She says, I'm beautiful. She says that she hopes that I will not laugh at her for writing to me. She apologizes for her spelling. She says, I can just tear this note up and she will never bother me again. She says she is writing while in bed and hopes that I don't mind that she is thinking of me. I hear the bell ringing for the next class, but I stay in the woods. I hug myself, sitting there with the cigarette butts and empty beer cans everywhere. I reread the note again and again. One page of handwriting from a frail girl, and there is more salvation there than in the combined pages of every book I have ever read. I stay in those littered woods, sitting against a white oak for most of the afternoon, far past the end of the school day, slowly writing her a one-page letter in return. I put my words down slow, listening to the sound of every sentence. But my words, in the end, were as simple and as truthful as hers. I wrote to her saying, I wanted to know her too. I wrote to her saying, I had always also noticed her and that I would not tear up her letter. I wrote to her saying that she was also beautiful and that her eyes were gray like clouds. That evening I found her house. I looked up her address in the phone book. I ran there, panting in the shadows and mostly hiding. I finally saw her at a second story window by herself in a room which I had guessed correctly, which was hers. I threw a pebble up there and she opened the window. She was smiling and I could see she was happy. I wrote you a letter, I said. Do you want to come in? She asked. I said, can you come out? She said, let me check. And then she was gone a minute and then she was outside and I had given her my letter folded like hers into a small square. She said, can I read this now? Yeah, yes, I said, but I have to go. And then just like that, I turned and I started running as fast as I could, running my five minute miles, the two miles back to my father's house. I had been told stories about how to avoid claymore mines. I had listened to graphic descriptions of sexual positions and perversions. I had listened to advice about God, advice about how to take drugs, advice about how to make money. I paid close attention to everything, but no one had ever told me how to deliver a love letter. It didn't matter though, but she had started with her folded note was such a good thing that neither of our inexperience was going to ruin it. Rather, it helped. Instead of talking or even phone calls or a date, for the next two weeks, every day, we traded folded letters in physics class. Her letters to me were sometimes just a single paragraph. Once, just a word. A Friday afternoon in April, 
at the start of the class I had given her what I had written the night before. I had left my father's house and had run to her house. It was so late that no lights were on and her house was dark. I then walked two blocks away. I sat down on the curb under a street light. 2 a.m. my letter started. I'm sitting near your house, writing. Your bedroom window is dark, and I hope you are sleeping deep and soft. Tomorrow, when you read this note, will you scold me if I write that I am lonely for you? Lonely for the laughter of your voice? Lonely for your words? The words you choose to share with me? Those words which I lean on and which hold me up? I gave her this folded note the next day, and I saw her read it during class, but she doesn't look at me. Mr. Bundy lectures, and I hear her pencil taking notes. Then the bell is ringing, and she hands me a folded note, stands up, and walks fast away from me. I unfold her note. It's a plain sheet of notebook paper, green ink, one word with no capitalizations, no adornments, just the very small word, love. Now I am reading her one word letter and now I am pushing through the crowded hallway and now I am catching up to her, touching her for the first time, touching her shoulder. She turns to me and she's crying. All around us are clumsy teenagers. Lockers are opening and then being slammed shut. What is wrong? I ask. Wrong? She says, brushing over her eyes with the back of her hands. Oh, there's nothing wrong. I'm just happy. And then she kisses me quickly, turns again, and nearly runs into her next class, just as the bell is ringing. I go outside to those woods, two hours sitting there until the final bell, and then I find her as she's leaving the building. We walk back to her house together. She touches my hand, and I touch her hand, and our shoulders brush, and our hands touch again, and, and then she takes my hand, she holds it, and I'm holding her hand, and she's holding my hand, and, and then she drops her books, and I, I don't understand, and then her arms are around me, and then my arms are at my sides, and then my arms are around her, and we are laughing, and we're laughing together. I remember her bones, the bones under her skin, and I remember her blood, the blood moving in her veins. I hear her breathing as she sleeps next to me. I am hiding with her in her room, waiting until her parents also go to sleep so that I can leave her house quietly. I'm running in the East Coast springtime along the concrete streets with more happiness and more sorrow than any child should ever carry. We only had two months together. I have finally been kicked out of school, 
and she has told me what is wrong with her. By then, I understand her frailty. By then, I have told her everything about myself, and I have realized that without her, I will be like dust. I wanted to show her the forest places. I wanted to take her with me to the deepest ones, into the west. She is sitting cross-legged on the grass in front of her house. It's early summer now, night, and I've been working on a construction site. I come to her house every evening and I eat sometimes with her family. I'm no longer so shy. But this day I did not come by until very late. She has told me things that I, I couldn't understand that I don't want to hear. And they have frightened me so much that the only thing I know how to do is to try to run away again. You see, we were both so alone. Her father liked me, though I could not meet his eyes and I cannot remember what he looked like. That last night, that, that summer night, I ran to her house at three in the morning and I threw small stones at the window. When she woke and looked down at me, she smiled, opened the window, and asked, What are you doing? I told her that I had to talk, that I could not sleep. She said, Wait a moment, and then she dressed and came outside. We sat on the grass next to the house, and I said that I wanted to go to Montana, and I asked her again to come with me. Dark with fireflies and that Virginia humidity that made my shirt stick to my back. We sat together, quiet, and I waited for an answer. But it never came. Instead, she said she had to go back inside. And I walked her to the front door, and she kissed me suddenly, her hand holding tightly to mine, then slipping away as she turned and opened the door. Inside, her father was in the near dark, sitting by a dim lamp, and I remember how he looked at me and how he waved, but the door was closed before any of us could say anything. Where I went was again a hard place. I sent her letters I wrote during lunch breaks and the string of labor jobs I ended up with. I sent her letters until one came back, a little less than a year after I had left, but it wasn't from her. It was a short note from her father, folded only once, telling me that I should not keep writing her since she was gone. These years, all these years, I'm in the clouds now, writing in a small notebook while en route to another business meeting. Out the small jet window, there is a halo of light, a circular rainbow that scientists call the glory, and they tell us which is caused by ice crystals, but which my heart tells me is her bright memory. If I could, I would go back to where we first met, that physics classroom, and I would hand her another carefully folded note, 
This time with these words, just these words, the note would say, I will stay. I left home without finishing school, and she tried to finish, but also did not make it. Come with me, I said that night. We will find clear rivers and forests and always be with each other. I said to her, come with me and you'll be fine again. Doctors know nothing. Come with me because we have so little time. Fool I was. I was a coward too because I left her alone when she should not have been alone. I imagine her father holding her. I imagine him crying for all of us, her trapped in this place of rock and air, breathing out for one last time while I swung and sweated on some stupid highway crew, pretending that at 18 my body could work a magic that would reach 2,000 miles back to hers and pull the illness from her bones. I still look for her everywhere. In the city crowds, I sometimes see a face like hers, or walking in a certain way, a girl with long, thin arms. But I find her most in solitary places, along the Blackfoot River in autumn, a place she never saw, where red river rocks sparkle in the low water and dark trout pretend to be shadows. I write these words with the same hand that wrote for her, the same hand that she held and touched that last moment as I was leaving and a door closing forever. Up here in these clouds, five miles from anything solid, I beg of forgiveness and wonder who I would have become if I had different strength and stayed with her to say goodbye. Some mistakes last forever and then we try forever to make up for them. The success that may become our surface is only the thinnest of covers over deep failure. You've just listened to Glory, a Montana voice podcast. Words and music by me, Steve Saroff. Thanks for listening.